you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open to the book of Titus, chapter 1. There are notes in the bulletin if you like to track along with the message. And we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, in the middle of the sermon, we will not be coming around with the elements, and so we've provided those at the back of the room. If you'd like to get up and grab those, if you would like to participate with us, you're welcome to do that. Titus chapter 2, our focus this morning is going to be on the two verses that bookend Titus chapter 2, verse 1 and then verse 15. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Uh, we're going to break from our study in the book of Titus, and we're going to talk specifically about uh, the cross and the death of Jesus and the resurrection and the hope that we have because of Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. And then in two weeks, so after Easter, we'll come back and we're going to fill in all these verses that we're skipping this morning. So our focus this morning is verse 1 and verse 15, sort of bookends of this chapter. And then we'll spend two weeks after Easter talking about verse 2 to verse 14. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we've broken the book of Titus down into sections, four sections. There's an introduction, which we've already covered, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. And then we've looked at this section on right leadership for several weeks. And then the next section is right doctrine. And then the final section is right living. And that's how we have sort of broken the book down into pieces to make sense of it and understand it. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that there are some who argue that this section on right leadership that we've been in actually ended at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, and that right doctrine begins in chapter 2, verse 1. And the reason they would say that is right here in Titus 2, 1, Paul talks to Titus about sound doctrine. So it sort of makes sense that that might be the beginning of the section on sound doctrine. And what I just want to say to you is that these sections in Titus that we've talked about are our attempt to make sense of the book. They're not necessarily the way that Paul was thinking when he wrote this letter. And really, when you look at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, you have some overlap in this idea of right leadership and right doctrine and those two ideas being wed together. So you can really, on your own, pick where do you want to start and stop these different sections, these different ideas in the book. I do think it's clear that at least in Titus 2, 2 down to 10, Paul is still talking about leadership in the church and how that ought to function and what that ought to look like, which is why I include it in the right leadership section. One thing that is clear is back in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said to Titus that I have left you on Crete to put what remained into order. All of these churches that have been started on the island of Crete, Paul left Titus there to put these churches into order. And that began with appointing elders in the churches. And so the immediate question is, who should Titus look for when he's putting these churches into order and he's establishing this leadership office of elder? And Paul begins to answer that question. And the first thing he says to Titus is, you need to find men who are qualified in terms of their character. In terms of their character. And he begins to spell that out in chapter 1, verse 6, above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, 
he must be above reproach again in verse 7. Uh, not arrogant, not quick, quick-tempered, not a drunkard. On and on he goes with all of these character qualifications. And then in verse 9, he begins to talk about some of the intellectual and ability issues that are related to men who serve as elders. And he says they've got to hold to the faith, the trustworthy word that they've been taught. And they've got to be able to teach the truth. And they've got to be able and willing to silence those who would fall in the category of false teachers. And we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about what it looks like and how we ought to think about this responsibility of silencing false teachers within the church. Our emphasis this morning is a little bit more positive. We're going to come back to this idea of teaching sound doctrine. And the big idea is straightforward. The elders of a church are called to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. You notice in parentheses, I've included the words overseers and pastors. Just to remind you again that in the New Testament, these three words are used interchangeably for the group of men called by God, set apart by the church for leadership. Elders, pastors, overseers all refer to the same group of men. And Paul is telling Titus here that these men are called to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So look at the scripture. And let's read Titus 2.1, and then let's jump down and read verse 15, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Jumping down to verse 15, Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. We pray that you would add blessing to the reading of your word. And Father, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes uh, to the truth as we continue to think about what does it mean to be a church put into order. Lord, we pray that the scriptures would shape our church and our thinking and our functioning and our living together more than the world or popular wisdom or worldly advice. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I thought this week about the responsibility of elders to teach what accords with sound doctrine, I found myself thinking about some of the teachers that I've had throughout my years in school growing up that had a tremendous impact on me. I don't know about you, but my experience with teachers going all the way from elementary school to middle school to high school to college to seminary was overwhelmingly positive. Every now and then you get a, a teacher that you don't quite care for, or you don't quite get along with, but most of my teachers were phenomenal. And thinking about the impact they had on my life, several of them stood out to me. I thought about my fourth grade teacher, Miss Redshaw at Belmar Elementary. I've told you about Miss Redshaw. She was the one who every day in fourth grade said to us, Life's tough, and then you die. Life's tough, and then you die. I think that's in Ecclesiastes somewhere, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights. Life's tough, and then you die. She also taught me, as much as anyone in my life, not to lie. And I've shared that story with you in the past. I won't share it again with you, but she taught me not to lie. That picture in the top middle is not actually one of my teachers. Does anybody know who that is? That is the gym coach from the Wonder Years. 
the gym coach from the Wonder Years. I tried to find a picture of my gym coach from middle school. Couldn't find it. I think he's passed away now. So I thought, what am I going to put up there? And I thought, well, he's pretty much the same guy as the gym coach from the Wonder Years. They're the exact same person, just a prototypical middle school gym coach. And at the time, we thought Coach Ogden was extremely mean and unfair and cruel and maybe a little bit sadistic. And in hindsight, I think we were just kind of soft, weak middle school boys that needed to be toughened up a little bit. I will say, uh, one of my memories of Coach Ogden is that he was a cowboy and used to bring his rope to class. And if we got out of line, he would put you on the baseline and he would send you running across half court and he would rope you about half court just for practice in his team roping skills. And I don't think you could get, a, get away with that anymore. If you're a gym coach, I don't recommend that. But it flew back at Crockett and uh, had a great impact on my life. I thought about my high school English teacher, Deanie Davis, uh, an amazing teacher. I had her for 11th grade and 12th grade English, back to back. And she was one of the very first teachers that I had that really, on a deep level, challenged me to think. Not just to memorize facts and regurgitate information, but to think and to use my mind and to question things. She was a fabulous, fabulous teacher. I thought about a couple of guys at seminary that had a big impact on my life. I've told you before, Emmanuel has a previous pastor named Bill Cook. The man on the bottom left is another Bill Cook. He was our pastor in Louisville at Ninth and O Baptist Church, and he was one of my New Testament professors at seminary, a godly man and a great, great teacher. And then on the bottom right is Chuck Lawless. He came and spoke at a marriage conference we had several years ago. He was my PhD supervisor and an amazing, amazing teacher. Uh, both of these men had a great impact on my life. And I'm, I'm thinking about teaching and teachers. And I'm thinking about people, as I look back, that had a tremendous impact on the way that I think and the way that I live today. And your life is no different than mine. We could put up a screen with your third grade teacher or your sixth grade teacher or your tenth grade teacher or somebody you took at college or university. A teacher who had an incredible impact on your life. And as you think about the impact of teachers in your life, understand that what Paul is saying to Titus in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that Titus, as you think about the elders slash overseers slash pastors that you will put into leadership in the churches on the island of Crete, you have got to find teachers. That's a non-negotiable aspect of what Paul is calling Titus to look for in these leaders. One of the best books that I ever read at seminary, and one of the few books that I've gone back and read more than twice, is a book called Great Teacher, Great Leader by Gary Bredfeld. And he says this, this book is called A Leadership by the Book, that is the Bible. The biblical leader is first and foremost a Bible teacher. And the people of God are a distinctive teaching, learning community where the principles of business leadership may not always apply. The biblical leader is first and foremost a teacher. I just want to say to you that when churches ignore this truth, 
that Breadfelt's talking about, that Paul is talking to Titus about. When churches ignore this truth and they put people into positions of leadership, rather than listening to biblical wisdom, but they use some sort of worldly wisdom, there's consequences in the church. And many times churches ignore this completely. And many times churches think in a worldly way when they think about who they will install into positions of leadership. And rather than thinking about the things that Paul is asking Titus to think about, they sort of look around and they say, who has the most dynamic personality? Who has the most outgoing personality? Who has the most influential persona within the church? Who has a a magnetic sort of charismatic way about them. Who's the guy who was captain of the team? That's the guy we need, captain of the football team. Who's the guy who's the leader or a CEO of a company? That's the kind of leader that we need. And many times people talk to me about churches that they've been a part of and they say to me, it just sort of feels like a business. You know why? Because many times churches have used business wisdom and business leadership principles to select their leaders. And that affects everything within a church. And Paul is saying to Titus, among other things, that the leaders in a church must be teachers. They have to be men of character. We've talked about that in chapter 1. They have to hold to the faith, the trustworthy word is taught, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They have to be able and willing to silence false teachers, but they also have to be teachers. They have to be able to teach. So this is the truth that we want to wrestle with this morning. And I just have several questions to walk through with you. Number one, how should we define sound doctrine? If that is what is to be taught by the leaders of a church, how would we define it? And I want to say to you that there's a couple of ways we could come at this. You could come at it negatively. And you could say, well, here are some things that sound doctrine is not. It's not this. And you could just trace through the pastoral epistles, especially First and Second Timothy, and you could find all manner of things that Paul mentions to pastors saying, these things are not sound doctrine. And I've given you the verses. You can write them down and trace them through if you want to. Let me just read what Paul talks about here. Myths, genealogies, speculative theology, embracing unrepentant sin, insisting on asceticism, the teaching of demons, pride, controversy, quarrels, friction, irreverent babble, foolish controversies, always learning and never arriving at the truth, and people who accumulate teachers who will say what they want them to say, what they want to hear. Paul warns us in the pastoral epistles, these things are not sound doctrine. But I want to answer it positively. What is sound doctrine, and again, we'll appeal to the pastoral epistles as a group in thinking through this question. Number one, sound doctrine is biblical. It must be biblical. Doctrine must be pulled from the scriptures if it's going to be sound doctrine. I'll put 2 Timothy 3 on the screen. You can turn one page to the left in your Bible and you can read it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, there's our word teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible makes a claim for itself that it is the Word of God breathed out. That the Holy Spirit of God inspired the authors of this book. So that what they wrote is at the same time their words and God's word. If that's true, then this book is without error. It's inerrant. And if that's true, then this book is authoritative. It has the right to change us and to call us to account. And if that's true, Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3, it is sufficient for life in godliness, and for what the church needs. The Bible is up to the task when it comes to establishing our faith and our doctrines and our beliefs. That's why, at Emmanuel, our normal practice is to preach expository sermons. It's to take one passage of Scripture, to read it, to talk about it, to explain the meaning, and then to try to apply it to to your life. I don't have anything life-changing to say to you. Neither do any of our elders. And our aim in preaching is to simply be a conduit through which you can hear the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired. It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's sufficient and it's authoritative for the life of God's people. So, number one, sound doctrine is biblical. Number two, sound doctrine is unchanging. It does not change. If you've gone back to 2 Timothy 3, maybe just go back another page or two to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Again, we're in the pastoral epistles. Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach. There's our word teach. Not to teach any different doctrine. You hear the parallel in 1 Timothy 1.3 and Titus 1.5. In Titus 1.5, Paul says, Titus, I left you on Crete for a purpose. I left you there to put things into order. 1 Timothy 1.3, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus. I left you there for a purpose. And your purpose is to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Why would Paul say to Timothy, to pastors, don't teach anything different. Just stick to the script. Don't veer to the right or to the left. Just stay on biblical message and do not teach anything different in terms of doctrine. It's because... Doctrine is unchanging. The Word of God is unchanging. The psalmist says it is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. And if the Word of God is unchanging and sound doctrine is pulled from the Bible, then our doctrine, sound doctrine, is never going to change. Now you understand lots of things change in a church. Lots of things change in churches. The style of music has changed in many churches over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Has it not? Many of you remember growing up when you were young, attending a church service where music was very different 
stylistically. Maybe more like what we do on Wednesday nights. Songs change. Chris made the comment earlier that the first song we sang this morning was an oldie. We haven't sang that song in a long time. We tend to do that, don't we? I mean, there's some songs, some great hymns, and even some newer songs that just stick with us, and we continue to sing them. But many times we sing a song for a season, and then we move on. Songs change. The look of a building changes. How many of you have been at a worship service in this room with white walls and dark trim and red, pinkish red all over the place? Now we just have eight shades of brown. Decorations, paint, carpet, chairs, they change. External things about God's people change over time, don't they? We have a framed photo in our office that floats around. From time to time, it appears in different people's offices. These are the deacons from Emmanuel in 1996, and the pastor and some of the leadership. You can't see it because of the circles being so small, but you're welcome to take a field trip to the office, and you can find it in our offices. I promise you, the style of facial hair and hair has changed since 1996 and you look at these photos and you say oh wow it looks so old looks so old timey it's just 1996 and on that point as you think about the men on this framed photo the leadership of a church changes there's a lot of faces on that photo 1996 is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things and most of those men are no longer here Just on average at Emanuel Baptist Church in Odessa, Texas, we lose 10 to 15% of our active members every year because they move out of Odessa. So the makeup of a church changes. The leadership of a church will change. I showed you my pastor in Louisville, Bill Cook. Well, up at the top middle of this photo, Pastor Bill Cook. A wonderful pastor. He's not the pastor here anymore. He passed away. No one will lead in a church forever. Not any of our current elders, including myself. So there's lots of things that change. And what Paul is saying to Titus and to Timothy and to us is that here's something that doesn't change. The Word of God will not change. And the things that you teach in the church should not change. Do not let people teach different doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. The things that we emphasize, you understand, in any given cultural moment may change. We live in a day and age where we have to emphasize some very obvious things, but they're things that the church has always believed about male and female and gender and salvation and how a person can be made right with God. The things that we teach may be less or more popular depending on what's happening in a culture, but the things that we teach do not change. Number three, sound doctrine is gospel-centered. It's gospel-centered. And here, all I want to do is draw your attention to our passage, Titus 2, 11 to 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Sound doctrine is gospel-centered. 
It's not a coincidence that as Paul is telling Titus to teach sound doctrine, that right here in 11 to 14, he goes into a summary of the gospel. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, we're interested in doing a deep Bible study. We want a deep study. And as I talk to them, what they mean is, we want to go off on the most obscure rabbit trails that we can find. And we want to talk about the most random Bible verses and try to make connections. We want to get way out in the weeds. Sometimes people say to me, hey, we want to be involved in a deep Bible study. And as I ask them questions and talk to them, what they really mean is, we want to hear something that no one has ever said before. We want to hear something new. We want to hear something innovative. Can't you come up with something new or creative that will sort of intrigue us or pique interest in us? If you want to be involved in a deep Bible study, the only way to do it is to be gospel-centered. Not chasing rabbits, not coming up with anything new, but to be gospel-centered. I'm thankful for the wisdom of a pastor named Alistair Begg. He talks about this issue of teaching and preaching. And he says this, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. That's true for the Bible. What's main is plain. And what's plain is main. And you ought to focus on those central gospel truths. We should not major in minors. If you want to be involved in deep Bible study, we shouldn't minor in majors. Center on the gospel. For example, let's think about God's character, His holiness, His glory, His righteousness, His mercy, His graciousness. Let's think about who He is. And let's plumb the depths of His character. Let's talk about sin. Honestly. The Bible is clear about the seriousness of our sinful condition, and it's far worse than we'd like to admit to ourselves. So let's be honest about our condition as sinners. Let's think about who Jesus is. Let's think about the miracle of the incarnation. Let's think about the atonement where Jesus Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice. Let's think about his death and his burial and his resurrection and the promise of his return. And let's talk about how all of these things can benefit us as sinners. The only way that they can benefit us is when we repent of our sin and believe. When we agree with God about who He is and who we are. And when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. If you want deep Bible study, you have to begin with the gospel. You have to focus on the gospel. And you have to end with the gospel. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we're celebrating the gospel. We're thinking about who God is in His holiness. And we're confessing our sin before God, that we have all fallen short of His glory. We're thanking Him for sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for us and to die for us. And we're saying to ourselves and we're saying to God, God, we have no hope left to ourselves. We agree with you about our sin problem. And all of our hope rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his life, his death, 
His burial, His resurrection, and the promise of His return. This morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, if you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you have the elements, I'll ask that you take those. You can open the side that has the bread. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this in verse 23 and verse 24. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. can open the side with the cup. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 11, this time verse 25 and 26, Paul says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we're grateful for a reminder of who you are and who we are and what you have done to bring reconciliation between us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his life, his death, for his resurrection. We thank you for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel until Christ returns and to do it not only through word, but also through taking this supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Back to Titus. I'm aware of the time. I'm aware of what's left on your outline, so we're going to move quickly. That was my plan. Don't panic. How shall we teach sound doctrine? All of these truths come from verse 15. Number one, teaching should be declarative. Declarative. Paul does not say to Titus that he ought to suggest these things or recommend these things. He says, declare them. Declare them. The teaching of the gospel is not simply a negotiation or a conversation or an invitation. It's first and foremost a declaration. This is true about who God is. This is true about who you are. This is true about the Lord Jesus this is how you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. Paul says to Titus, declare these things. Secondly, it should be exhortative. Declare these things, exhort. That is to call people in an encouraging, compelling way to make a response. To hear the truth of the gospel declared and then not to walk away like a man who sees his face in the mirror, leaves and forgets what he saw. But to make a response. The response 
that you're called to is not clean up your life. It's agree with God about your sin problem and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to begin to follow him. We declare these things. We exhort. Number three, teaching should be corrective. Corrective. As soon as we're talking positively about teaching the gospel, Paul circles back and he says, not only do you declare these things, not only do you exhort, but you rebuke with all authority. Now we're back to rebuking false teachers. We're back to silencing false teachers. You can't get away from it. Gospel integrity, gospel honesty demands that at some point, those of us who teach say, not this, but this. Not that, but this. Why do we have to do that? We've talked about this. Paul says to Titus, many will come. Many false teachers will come. You have to be honest when it comes to teaching the truth for people who live in a culture where they hear all sorts of things to say, not this, but this. Not the Mormon view of Jesus. The biblical view of Jesus. Not the Roman Catholic view of salvation. The biblical view of salvation. Not a secular view of gender and sexuality, but a biblical view of gender and sexuality. Not the popular evangelical idea that worship and what happens in this room is to entertain you, but the idea biblically that what happens in this room is ultimately to honor and glorify God. Not this, but that. There has to be rebuking. Declarative, exhortative, corrective. Number four, it should be authoritative. Authoritative. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. You understand that the authority that Titus had, had nothing to do with his title. Nothing to do with his title. That he was an elder, or an overseer, or a pastor. Had nothing to do with his position on Crete. Had nothing to do with his connection to Paul. It had everything to do with the message that he was proclaiming. The inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Titus, when you declare these things, do it with authority. Last, how should we respond? I didn't put this on your notes, but you understand that we could just circle back to the big idea of this passage. And we could say the elders of a church are called to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We've belabored that point, so let's move in the direction of application and think about us as a church. The members of a church are called to expect sound doctrine. That may seem really obvious to you, but it's really important for a church. It's really important that when you come to this place at 8.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or when you walk into this building at 6.30 on a, a Wednesday evening, that your expectation is that you have come to hear sound doctrine. Not to be entertained, not to hear a comedy routine, not to be blown away with some emotional experience that happens when the band or the, the musicians or the singers are up on the stage, not to be impressed with any sort of performative aspect of a service, but your expectation is to hear sound doctrine. Next, 
members of a church are called to submit to sound doctrine. Elders and church members, all of us. If your grandma taught you differently than what the Bible says, we love grandmas, but you've got to listen to the Bible. If the world says up is down and down is up, it doesn't matter what the world says, you've got to listen to the Scriptures. If you read something in the Scriptures and your initial thought is, I don't really like that idea. It doesn't sit well with me. You've got to put those feelings aside and you've got to listen to what the Bible says. Expect sound doctrine. Submit to sound doctrine. Lastly, the members of a church are called to teach sound doctrine. And this is Titus 2, 2 to 10. We're going to end here without a lot of comment. After we break for Easter, we will circle back and we'll talk about this next section, Titus 2, verse 2 to 10. The spoiler alert is this. As Paul's thinking about the responsibility of elders and this call to sound doctrine, he not only applies it to elders, pastors, overseers, but the, he then turns around and he says to all of the members of the church, old men, young men, old women, young women, everyone in between, you are called to teach sound doctrine to someone else. And we'll circle back to that in a few weeks. In the meantime, we pray that God would make us a church put into order. Father, we're grateful for the book of Titus. We're grateful for these instructions about how a church might be put into order. We thank you for this call to be people committed to sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, unchanging doctrine, gospel-centered doctrine. Father, we pray that we would be a place uh, where sound doctrine is taught and where people come expecting uh, and eager to hear sound doctrine. Father, we just want to end this morning by singing the gospel truth that you are a good father to your people. You provide what we need. That's true in our lives as a church. You have provided for us in giving us your spirit and giving us the Bible. That's true in our lives individually. You meet our needs and you provide our daily bread. Father, it's true for us as Christians that you have met our greatest need in sending the Lord Jesus. So we just stop this morning as your people to thank you for who you are, to thank you for the good news of the gospel, and to celebrate those truths before we rush off. Father, be honored in our singing, be honored in our response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.